Welcome to episode 169 of Reclaiming the Faith. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. Today, we'll be discussing topics in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, like the activity of Satan and the day of judgment. You can find links to all of my resources at philsbaker.com. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And you can check out my catalog of podcasts on my show, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker. Also, I've got a new book, The Final Abominable Temple, which you can purchase in audio, digital, paperback, and hardback formats on Amazon. And if you've read it, please consider leaving a review on there as well. And finally, we're blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. And you can find links to all of our content there at omegafrequency.com. All right, Stephanie, let's get into episode 169. Let's do it. All right, Stephanie, we are recording this the Sunday after Thanksgiving. What's something you're thankful for? I am thankful for time with family. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. Got to spend some time at a really pretty lake in Arkansas. It so. is a very pretty lake. Yeah. So that was nice. Some of uh, seeing some of God's beautiful sunsets and sunrises. It was nice. Yeah. I'm thankful for that too. I'm also yeah. thankful to get our dogs back. Yeah. <laughs> they spent the week at, at camp. Yeah. Yeah. I miss those guys. Yeah. When they're gone. It's nice. Yeah. They're nice. pretty good. Yeah. Pretty fun dogs. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're getting back into First Thessalonians. We're going to close out chapter two today. Thought we were going to go into chapter three, but no. Nope. Plans changed. Plans changed. Yep. But yeah, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Just to remind folks of a little bit of the context, Paul had been talking about um, how the unbelieving Jews at Thessalonica had been persecuting um, some of the believing Jews at Thessalonica and the believing Gentiles at Thessalonica. And Paul was talking about how, you know, these people have incurred God's wrath because they're not believing in Jesus. And so um, we discussed that a long time. And and we also discussed Paul's heart um, that he expresses very clearly in Romans chapter nine for ethnic Jews that they just like Gentiles would come to faith in Jesus. He just like Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. Um, And he will go to great lengths to... um, help show people the truth of the gospel in the book of Galatians, Paul, to display the authenticity of his apostleship, talks about how he bears in his body the marks of Jesus. Like, he's like, I'm being beaten for Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we've also seen in First Thessalonians, Paul use... Uh, in chapter two, especially parent language. He's used motherly language. Mm-hmm. Um, he's used fatherly language with them. And we're going to see that happen again. 
he has strong, strong compassion and almost parental love toward this congregation. He really wants to see them thrive. And uh, you remember how they were taken away, or Paul and Silas were taken away from the uh, Thessalonians because of the persecution that arose due to the unbelieving jealousy, or unbelieving Jews' jealousy mm. um, that sprung up yeah. in Thessalonica, and they got uh, Jason dragged before the officials. In Thessalonica, Jason had to post a bond, basically promising not to stir up trouble anymore. Got Paul and Silas hustled out of there real quick. So he didn't get to spend the time that he wanted to spend with the uh, Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just a little background. um, But uh, let's go ahead and read verses 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, In person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. All right, now, just a few verses there, and it may seem like there's not a lot, but there's a ton that he's saying. So let's go ahead and dig in. So we'll kind of lump verses 17 and 18 and really focus on 18. Mm -hmm. Again, like they were taken away after just a short time. We don't remember how long Paul and Silas and Timothy were there. Acts 17 talks about how uh, Paul reasoned with the Jews for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. So at least, you know, three weeks or so, but probably a little bit more than a month. We're not not certain, but it was a very short time and uh, definitely not long enough for Paul's liking. Really has a strong affinity for these guys and He didn't get to communicate every bit that he wanted to communicate, um, as we'll see later on um, in in the teaching. But um, go ahead. That that language of being like torn away, I just feel, you feel the emotion in that. You feel that, you know, obviously obviously Paul didn't want to leave, um, but he had to, he was forced to. And there's just, yeah, there's the language in this whole section is just so like tender. And, you know, you use the word parental. There's so much of that there. And I think it's really important for people that are believers that are working to honor God. And we see the folks that God puts in our life like this, like see them with that love and affection instead of like, okay, on to the next, you know, this is, it's not a project. These are, he's imparting his life them. And I think that's convicting in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, that, that you, that word um, taken away from you. Torn is what it says in my version. Yeah. yeah it's, it's also uh, translated like bereaved. Mm. 
or orphaned. Mm. So this is like a familial separation that seems permanent. It seems that way, at least to him. That's the way it felt, that it's causing him angst and grief. Mm -hmm. Because like you just lost a family member. Mm. It's strong language there. And you're right, like there's... There's um, really cool language that is used. Think about, you know, Paul uh, in Acts chapter nine is vehemently um, persecuting the Christians. Um, And he goes to Damascus to round up more Christians. And on his way there, of course, he's blinded by the glory of Jesus And Jesus had previously told a man at Damascus named Ananias to pray for Paul. Of course, his name is Saul at Mm -hmm. that time. You know, he's coming there. You're going to lay your hands on him and pray for him that he'll regain his sight. Well, when Saul does come there, um, Ananias says to him, Brother Saul, (laughs) regain your sight, right? That's just, it's like instant from the Christian community there. Yeah. It's really neat. Mm. Yeah. Did you have something else? No. I okay. was just agreeing with you. Okay. So look at verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. Now, that's very similar language to Romans Fifteen twenty-two, where Paul writes to the Romans, I have often been prevented or hindered from coming to you. So more than once, again and again, Paul has been prevented from going to Rome. Yet in Romans, Paul doesn't blame that on Satan. In Acts 16, he's wanting to go one direction, but and there's Trinity language in there. You see God, you see the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Like you see God preventing Paul from going a direction that he wanted to go and directing him toward Macedonia. So sometimes it's just people. Sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's Satan. Mm. But it's interesting Paul doesn't always blame things on the devil. He doesn't always blame things on people. He doesn't always blame things on God. He's specific. Yeah. And this specific time, he says that Satan blocked their way, basically. This word hindered or prevented, it literally means to like get in their way, Mm. which is interesting because like Satan is localized in one point, like he is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. Yeah. He has to be in one place at one time. Mm. Now that could be metaphorical language. Yeah. Or it could be literal language. And sometimes as we'll see in a little bit, it's, it's used both ways. It could be him directing an evil agent to do that, Mm -hmm. you know? So any initial thoughts as you're... uh... 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's like discernment and like, you know, listening to the spirit where you know what's stopping you from doing something. Because, I mean, yeah, he, he doesn't just say like, oh, I was unable to go, like you said. He's He gives that little detail that it was Satan that hindered him from going. And, um, yeah, I'd be be interesting to know exactly what that looks like, you know, what exactly that was. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, in our Sunday night small group, we just finished up Zechariah. Mm-hmm. And in that last chapter, especially, you see a lot of eschatological verbiage. Uh, you see a lot of verbiage that gets applied to like uh, the... Um, millennial reign and some people's interpretation, just end time stuff. Mm -hmm. And so naturally the conversation evolved toward, you know, what, what stance people take Mm -hmm. in their eschatology. And um, a lot of that depends on how folks uh, interpret revelation chapter 20, um, because that is where you get this verbiage about a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And that first happens at the beginning of chapter 20 when it says an angel came and put a great chain on the devil and bound him for a thousand years Mm -hmm. in the abyss so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore. Mm. All right, now, so... From a premillennial perspective, that is during the millennial reign of Jesus, that the devil is literally locked in some type of pit. It mm-hmm. may be in a different dimension, who, who knows, but he's literally like bound by some type of God created chain in a God created pit. Mm-hmm. So he literally cannot deceive the nations because of. Um, his location and because there is some type of literal chain around him. Yeah. Okay. Could be a spiritual chain that's used to bind a spiritual being. I don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. but from the amillennial standpoint, um, they see, and I'm, you know, being general, I'm being general, in, in these statements, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush here because there are people who have, you know, a nuanced view of these things. But from an amillennial standpoint, uh, basically we're in the millennial reign right now. It's not a literal thousand years, but Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. And so the devil is currently bound. Now, what does that mean? Clearly he's not literally Powerless. Powerless. He's not literally uh, in a pit. He is not uh, literally, he doesn't literally have a chain around him. But either way, with either view, the more you press into it, the more you find very significant holes um, in, in how things play out. And um, if you take a a dig in your heels, hardcore approach, there are going to be massive holes in the premillennial stance, and there are going to be massive holes in the amillennial stance concerning what 
<laughs> concerning things. Mm-hmm. But particularly with the binding of Satan in the amillennial stance, what does that mean? So throwing the eschatological issue aside for a minute, let's just look at a few areas uh, that the New Testament, where the New Testament describes the activity of Satan, what the devil is actually doing right now, okay? And what he's allowed to do. So, um, Stephanie, why don't you pull up Matthew 13, verse 19, that, and I'll read one just before you, okay? But that's gonna be the parable of the soils. And this is in the explanation part of it. While you're pulling that up, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 19b, basically, where John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's just something to keep in mind. And of course, that type of verbiage is also echoed in John chapter 12 as well. Um But Stephanie, go ahead. This is Matthew 13, verse 19. Just that verse? Yeah. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. All right. So what do you see in that in terms of activity of Satan? He's able to take the word that's implanted in somebody. Yeah. It's been sown in their heart. Yeah. And when you harmonize that um, parable from Luke 8 and Mark 4, that word of the kingdom is designed to save them. And uh, it's so that they cannot be saved. Yeah. And so, by the way, um, this this phrase in uh, verse 19 from Matthew when they hear the word about the kingdom, but they don't understand it, man, that really, it really lends itself to, or it it gives so much weight to the importance of communal Bible study, where you're in an environment where when you don't understand something, you can like raise your hand and ask questions. Mm Mm-hmm. So important. How many times were you just sitting in church where there's a sermon and you're not allowed to raise your hand in church in most churches and stop and say, hold on, I didn't get that. Right. Can you say that again? (laughs) Hold on, that sounds weird. I I don't agree with that. Yeah. And push back. No, you have to just kind of take it. Whereas, or at least for the time, you can always talk to them later. But, you know, in the communal setting, you have the it's a lot less intimidating to to ask of people that may or may not have been studying the Bible longer than you and, you know, have different life experiences too. But, you know, hopefully together y'all can come to a conclusion. Yeah. And so, you know what's going on here also? You know what this shows? What? <laughs> <laughs> it shows that evil beings are sitting in your Christian gatherings. Yeah. And actively participating in Christian gatherings. And it doesn't mean, I'm not talking about Joel Osteen services. I mean, yes, (laughs) but like, 
they're actively sitting in really, really solid, hardcore, good teaching small groups as well. Mm. Trying to get people sleepy, trying to get people distracted, trying to get people in their feelings so that they're afraid to raise their hand Mm -hmm. and stop the group so that they're okay with just being confused. They're actively participating. They're not passive participants. They're active participants. So this doesn't have to necessarily be Satan. It's probably not Satan because God's word is being proclaimed all over the world. So this is probably talking about the minions, you know? But that's something to pay attention to. So I'm going to do Luke 13, uh, 10 through 16. And then Steph, uh, I'd like you to do Acts 5 verses 1 through 3, okay? Acts 5 verses 1 through 3. But uh, yeah. So here is Luke 13, 10. So Jesus, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness that was caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. All right, pause. This woman has been bound by a spirit for 18 years. Doesn't say why. Doesn't say that she was a sinner. We don't know why, but Luke is very, this is a doctor that's writing this. He's a doctor that's saying an evil spirit is causing this woman to have a a health issue, is manifesting itself in a way that is causing her to have serious, like spinal problems. Mm -hmm. Okay? Physician writing this. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. Okay, now that's interesting. He didn't cast the demon out, but he said, woman, you are freed from your sickness. So the spirit had caused her to be sick. He freed her from the illness or the sickness, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. He set her free from that. Yeah. Pay attention to the verbiage in that. It's interesting. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He didn't cast out the demon, he healed her, but Mm. the spirit had afflicted her. So it was oppressing her without indwelling her necessarily. And I don't know how that works, but that's what was going on. Could it be like she was bound by a spirit and that like that's a one-time thing that causes a lasting physical effect? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But he doesn't cast the spirit out, but mm-hmm. the spirit had caused that illness. Right. Jesus healed her. But there's more to the story. Okay, 
So Jesus says, um, or sorry, the synagogue officials indignant. He says, there's six days in which work can be done. So come during then to get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus attributes this not to a spirit, but to Satan. So that's interesting because Luke is saying, no, a spirit did it. And Jesus basically says, and that's because of Satan. Hmm. So it seems if we can infer something from that, that Satan gave an order. So let's just leave that there. Let's go to Acts chapter five, verse one through three. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So what do you see Satan doing there? He fills his heart and makes him lie, be greedy. Yeah, now he didn't make him. Yeah. But he put it in his heart. Yeah. To lie. Mm-hmm. Which kind of seems like deception. Yeah, it's interesting that he wants him like to just be partially truthful. Like <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, just keep all the money for yourself or or don't even sell the property in the first place. He's still doing something that's like ostensibly really good. And it's it's this deception that's so significant. Now, he didn't come to Peter initially and say, here is all the money that we sold it, sold the land for. He just brought the money to Peter. He mm-hmm. didn't say anything. He just brought the money. The lie happened in the conversation between Ananias and Sapphira back at their house. Yeah. They decided back there that they would do that lie. Mm-hmm. But God was listening. Mm-hmm. God was watching. God is omnipresent. Yeah. But God was watching them be deceived. God could see there's like, you know, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, you know, and the lust of the eyes. But then there's, that's from James, right? But mm-hmm. then there's also, there's demonic stuff that can also enter into our brains. Mm-hmm. That's not from us. But then we have a choice on how to act on that. And they listened to that, to that deceitful voice. Yeah. Mm. And it seems that that was Satan himself, perhaps trying to um, corrupt that incredibly healthy community that was being so victorious, kind of like Achan um, and AI. Y'all remember that whole thing, Mm. right? 
with Joshua. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to do 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. And can you do 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 5? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5. Okay. All right. So I'm going to do first 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. So Paul is here talking about marital relationships in 1 Corinthians 7. And he says, stop depriving one another, husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's talking about marital intimacy there, Mm -hmm. right? And this is probably not Satan himself that's tempting every single person in the community at Corinth, but probably referring to demonic influence. Right. Right. Um, But yeah, that Satan is actively trying to tempt believers. Mm Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get into some real soap opera type stuff <laughs> from two chapters earlier in uh, in Corinth. Um, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." All right. So this is wild. It's like the opposite type of report from the the Thessalonian letters. Mm-hmm. Cuz in like Thessalonians he's Paul is bragging about how everywhere I go people talk about they give me incredible reports about y'all. Yeah. You know, about your your conduct, how you've turned from idols to serve the living God, you know, you're being evangelistic everywhere I go. You right. know, your faith and purity, all that kind of stuff. He's like, everywhere I go, Corinthians, I'm hearing this crazy stuff about you guys. Yeah. And you're bragging about it. Now, why are they? Yeah, (laughs) shake my head. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're bragging about Why are they arrogant about it? We don't know why they're arrogant about it. Perhaps it's like grace covers all this stuff. I don't know. We don't know why they're arrogant about it. What a weird thing to... But they're bragging about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This dude, he's with his stepmom. It's so awesome. Mm. That's crazy, right? But then Paul's like, you guys should have delivered this person to Satan. Now that is like basically remove this guy from fellowship, Yeah. right? But the purpose is so that give him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What do you think about that? Oh, um, 
I was actually, I had another thought before we get into that. All right, but, well. Um, I was just like thinking how this sort of passage brings credence to the idea of like churches needing oversight. Yeah. Like, you know, we, there's so many, like, especially since like non-denominational churches have become such a huge part and people that have like split from denominations, not that everybody has to be a part of a particular one, but usually with a denomination, you have leadership that would call out something that's like an egregious issue in a church, ideally. But um, if the church is its own entity and the pastor is the head of everything and he's unable to be questioned, then I could see how this kind of thing, you know, it still happens today. So it's good to have oversight from somebody who's mature and not afraid to call out sin. Yeah, and, you know, you don't have to be a part of a mainline denomination to have oversight if right. you have, like, a true body of elders that the pastor truly answers to them. He's not first among equals, yeah. you know, um, and the elders... <laughs> are not on the payroll as well, hopefully, you know. I mean, yeah. they could be, but like, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. Even in mainline denominations. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that's without problems. Yeah. I'm just saying like there, need, like there should be true oversight because you can have a mainline denomination and not have oversight in the right way. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be oversight from like Bible-believing people who will call out sin and not be afraid because they're saving this person's soul. Yeah. And that's really the the purpose of this. Yeah. Paul wants this man to not be destroyed by, he doesn't want his soul to be destroyed by God. So he wants this person to experience extreme discipline. Mm -hmm. So like let Satan take away Everything that can be, it's almost like a Hebrews. Like a shunning? It's like a Hebrews 12. Yes, it is a shunning thing, but it's kind of like a Hebrews 12 thing when the writer talks about there's a, the time has come for things to be shaken. The things that can be shaken that are temporal are going to be shaken so that things that are eternal are shown to be true. Those things cannot be shaken. And so like, yeah, we, we want to preserve this man's soul. So let him experience discipline now so that he repents, basically. But that Satan can actively destroy this man's, like can hurt this man's flesh, like mm-hmm. literally. Think about what Satan did to Job. Yeah. That was the destruction of Job's flesh, literally. His kids, his animals, mm-hmm. his house, his crops, his money, boils, like, for real. That was the, I mean, that's literally what went on. But God restored him. You know, now that wasn't because of Job's sin at all. But Paul is, it seems like Paul is kind of viewing it as a last ditch thing to wake this guy up. Maybe kind of like a, um, prodigal, like the younger son in the prodigal son story, mm-hmm. Luke 15, the destruction of his flesh yeah, that woke him up, oh, you know, hopefully. Could almost be like an intervention to some yeah. degree. Like you 
you're going to lose. This is all that you're going to lose. Yeah. Yeah. No help from the covenant community mm-hmm. for a period. Now, here's the good news. Second Corinthians 2.6, talking about the same issue. We don't know how much time has passed, but it's been a while probably a couple of years or so. And he says, sufficient for such a one, talking about that, that same dude, is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him if he's repented. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive any, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, I have already forgiven. If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So Satan is scheming against the church. And he can take advantage of the church. And Paul is saying, we can't let that happen. And this kind of reiterates a point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 about how one, if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. That's one member of the body, this guy. And Paul's basically saying like, we need this guy to function like we should. You may not think you need your fourth toe on your right foot. You know, you can get by without it, but it sure makes life better if you got it, you know? So anyway, you know, I'm really, we're, we're probably belaboring this point a little bit too much, but uh, let's, uh, let's just read one more. All right. We'll just do one more. I've got such a, such a long list. So, Steph, can you just read First uh, Peter five, six through nine? All right. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered... Oh, I went a little far. (laughs) I went too far. It's okay. So, what do you take away from that regarding the activity of Satan? He is very clever, and he is always after us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He is not just trying to pull pranks. Mm -hmm. He's trying to devour like a lion. So what are we supposed to do? Be sober-minded and watchful. Uh Uh-huh. Resist him. Right. It's not like refusing to act. It's a resistance force. It's two armies like that Napoleon movie, you know, Napoleonic warfare, where they're like marching up in lines against each other. That's what the word resist means. It's a resistance, lining up for battle. Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, like, you got to do battle against the devil. 
which means he's doing battle against you because he's trying to slaughter you. Mm-hmm. And it's the way that he would slaughter you is by getting you to defect, by getting you to defect in different types of ways. And we'll get into that more in the next podcast. But that's really his goal because he can't take your soul from you. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't take you out of the Father's hand. But if he can get you to reject Jesus, it's just as good. Yeah. And there are different ways that he comes at that. But that's the goal. And if he can't do that, he'll definitely try to destroy the flesh, you know, to, to persecute, you know. But, um, and that's one of the ways that he tries to get people to defect. Spoiler alert. But anyway, let's, um, let's go to uh, verse 19 and 20 of First um, Thessalonians 2. We're going to come to our last little section. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So this is some weird language. This is some weird language based on uh, several verses. Now, Paul is saying that his crown of exaltation is not Jesus. It's the church, the -hmm. people of Thessalonica. That's weird. That's really weird. Yeah. Okay. Now he says that also in Philippians 4.1 about the church at Philippi. He says that they are his beloved brethren who he longs to see my joy in my, in my crown. That's, that's interesting. Okay. Based on the way like this word crown is used um, by the authors of the New Testament. So we're going to read some different um, verses about the crowns that New Testament authors say either they're going to receive or we're going to receive, okay? Now, one thing I want you to notice, though, he says that he's going to receive this crown, that they will be his crown in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. Glory and joy, okay? At his coming. That word coming is parousia, which means arrival, presence. That's the second coming. And we're going to get into that because that's a theme Paul has already covered in chapter one. He covers it in chapter two. He covers it in chapter three. He covers it in chapter four and in chapter five. This is like debatable, but it's one of the main themes of both letters, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what happens at that coming will really, really hammer that in chapter four. 
But for now, he's talking about crowns at the presence, at the coming, the second coming of Jesus. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, Steph. Yep. Can you please read James mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 12? Okay? James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. All right. Crown of life to those who love him. That would seem to be an individualistic type thing, right? That doesn't seem to be applied to the perseverance of someone else, someone else being faithful then you get a crown. Yeah. It seems to be you being faithful to the end of your life. Yeah. And you get this crown of life, Mm -hmm. basically. It's almost like that verbiage about like, you know, it's he who endures to the end who will be saved. Yeah. Type stuff. Something I never really like noticed about that verse, but I mean, it's, it's talking about like, troubles, tribulations, and it's talking about those that God loves all in the same thing. Like you're you're going to have them. And I hadn't really thought about that part. You know, the, the crown of life is what's promised to those who love him, who will, who will suffer. You know, that's what it's implying. You're mm-hmm. going to. And if you, per, you know, uh, persevere to the end, then you receive this reward. Yeah. Stay tuned for more of that in the next podcast. <laughs> Uh, here's second Timothy chapter four, verse eight. This is Paul's last letter, the last chapter of the last letter that he ever wrote. He says in the future, there is laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day to all who have loved his appearing. Now that appearing word is not the same word as the parousia, but it's very similar to the word that he uses in chapter one at the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, when he talks about at the appearing, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ um, from heaven the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, his appearing, that idea, very similar themes there. So Paul gets this crown of righteousness from the righteous judge when the judge appears. So notice you have judgment at the second coming. Mm Mm-hmm. Judgment, but not just judgment, rewards. Rewards given. And this reward is a crown of righteousness, which is interesting. Now, is he talking about the righteousness of Christ? Is that the type of righteousness that he's talking about? Or is he talking about righteous living? It seems like the living... Yeah, I mean, 
the righteousness of Christ would seem to be something that's already been applied to him. Yeah. That's how we are saved, you know, by believing in that. There are different ways righteousness is used. Righteous living is something that is very important to Paul in like the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Sometimes it's used to refer to Christ's righteousness being applied to us, but sometimes it's used just in terms of the way we live. So what is Paul talking about? Is Paul talking about a reward based on righteous living? Maybe so. All right, so uh, Steph, can you do 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verse 4. All right. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glo- crown of glory. Mm. Chief shepherd being? Jesus. When he does what? Appears. When he appears, the appearing of Jesus. When he appears, a crown is given. Now, this is of unfading glory. That seems perhaps to correspond with what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul talks about how when Jesus returns, our temporal earthly bodies are exchanged for a glorious body like the Lord's. So is that the type of crown that Paul is talking about there? I'm not sure. So that would that'd be like a different type of reward that isn't necessarily based on deeds, but is just like a reward for being in Christ. You get a new glorified body. Uh so let's um let's do one more passage. Uh Steph, we're gonna do Second Corinthians chapter five, verse ten. This is um is a really important, important passage. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right. Now I have heard Christians that are very faithful to their Bibles, that are Bible believing, that um, very serious, studious people Mm -hmm. say that this does not apply to Christians. Okay. Because Christians are not judged on their deeds. Christians don't face judgment. We are just, it's just based on whether we believed in Jesus or not, that this does not apply to us. So what they're saying is that somebody might be seen as righteous enough or right, good enough apart from Jesus. This would be talking about unbelievers being judged based on their deeds. Right. So somebody could potentially, apart from Jesus, no? Not be good enough to go to heaven per se, you know, but okay. just be rewarded before they're thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> that's such a crazy yeah. phrase. No, but, but that's like literally when you spell yeah. it out, that's what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, let's go to a disciple of the Apostle John, maybe. Okay? Yeah. So, this guy was alive while John was still in Ephesus. He, according to tradition, sat at John's feet, trained up by him, at least for a little while. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp. There you go, Kurt. If you're listening, we worked in Polycarp. But uh, this is what Polycarp said about that particular verse. And this is in Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. He says, and you can see... uh, little bit of Matthew in here as well. If then we entreat the Lord to forgive us, we also ought to forgive others. For we are before the eyes of our Lord and God, and we all must appear at the judgment seat of Christ and must everyone give an account of himself. Let us then serve him in fear and with all reverence, even as he himself has commanded us and as the apostles who preached the gospel unto us and the prophets who proclaimed beforehand the coming of the Lord. So Polycarp is saying that this is for the church. This is for believers. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards or punishments based on what we have done in the body whether good or bad. All right. So how do we make sense of all this? Well, you know, like is with Paul saying that the Thessalonians are his crown and his joy. How how do we deal with that? With Paul not saying Jesus is. One way of looking at that is based on Jesus's words that a tree is judged by its fruit. Now that's from Matthew. A good tree produces good fruit. Good fruit. <laughs> good. <laughs> a good free produces good fruit. <laughs> a, a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Steph, can you do me a favor and pull up the Gospel of John? And can you please read? Verses one through five. Now in this chapter, John chapter 15, verses one through five. Now in this, Jesus is going to bring up the analogy of the uh, vine. And in this, he's hearkening his disciples' minds back to Isaiah chapter five, um, where God calls Israel basically like this, this vine basically. And um, he's like, he does everything that he could for them to be, to produce good fruit. Um, Well, now Israel isn't, Jesus is the vine. Okay. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. So tell me what you think about this. It seems like Paul may be appealing to this type of thinking, this type of analogy, where if we are in Christ, if we are truly in him and he is in us, Mm -hmm. then we are going to produce fruit. Yeah. And Paul is looking at the Thessalonians as fruit. Mm. Evidence of the work that Christ has done through him. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. So when Jesus appears, Paul is like, look at them. Look at that. Mm. Like, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. He's not boasting in himself. He's actually boasting in Christ that Christ was truly in him, that he was in the vine. I was truly saved. Jesus truly saved me because look at that. Yeah. Now you can take that too far, Mm -hmm. right? You can take that analogy too far because like there can be, there can be pastors. I hate to like, but let's just say, you know, there, there are different analogies that people can, that we could go or different examples we could go to of people that were saved under pastors that eventually like either fell away or got into serious um, uh, sin. And, um, but they produced disciples that have done incredible things. Yeah. So those pastors can't look at their flock and say, even though I fell into serious egregious sin or even fell away completely from the Lord, I'm still saved because look at my flock. Yeah. Right. Or, so you, you can take that like- too far. Vice versa, like if you, there are people that like God calls to go to groups where there may be only one or two or maybe none that they see that follow Jesus and they've given their life to this work. And just because they don't have like a big church full of people doesn't mean that like there isn't evidence of them devoting their life to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. But I think. I think that's what Paul is kind of getting at. He's like, you guys are evidence of Christ moving through me. Yeah. So let's go back to this idea of judgment to kind of close this out. Okay. There seem to be like two aspects to judgment. There seems to be judgment that is immediate right at the point of death, which is based on God saying, what did you do with my son? Were you in Christ or not? Were you in the vine or not? That means when you are absent from the body, will you be present with the Lord or not? What did you do with my son? And that seems to be immediate. That seems to be whether you were, your name was written in the book of life or not. But then there are other books that have everything we've ever done or said 
written in them, recorded in them. Mm-hmm. And that seems to, um, that judgment seems to take place at the appearing of Jesus, rewards and punishments. Now, I'm not going to die on the, ti- the, the hill of the timing of, <laughs> of this second, but that's what seems to be, that's what it's, that's what these passages seem to imply. That the that judgment day basically happens when Jesus returns. Yeah. And that would be what did I do with what I gave you? What did you do with your lips, with your brain? You know, with your time, with your money? What did you do with what I gave you? And rewards and punishments are doled out there. Now, it seems that if your name was in the book of life, that is, you, you cannot be erased, you know, mm-hmm. like that you're, you're going to be good. You know, if you died with your name in the book of life, you're going to be okay. You're not going to face the second death. But um, there can still be rewards and punishments, it seems you know, like added on. Um, now, again, I'm not going to like really die on, on that hill, but the Christian, the early Christians absolutely believed in rewards and punishments. So two judgments. What did you do with my son? It's based on whether you're eternally with God or not. And then what did you do with what I gave you? Um, that's uh, rewards and punishments. Um, again, like second Corinthians five ten, it's everything that we've done, whether good or bad, everything that we've done, good or bad is going to be brought to light. Um, Matthew 12, 36, Jesus tells us, he says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. That terrifies me. Yeah. Like for real. Every careless word will be, I will have to give an an accounting for it. And I can make a joke about like, like, so what was up with that four letter word? Yeah. What what happened there? Was it really worth that? Yeah. Uh, Explain yourself, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, every careless word. This is Jesus talking. But then like what, what constitutes a good deed? You know, everything, whether good or bad. Galatians 5, 6. This is the NAS version. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Now, I memorized that verse a long, long time ago in the NIV. And it's basically like the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Um, I haven't read an NIV Bible in a really long time. <laughs> but I think it does a good good um, job with that translation. Like that's what seems to really count. 
That's what seems to constitute a good deed. Faith that is showing itself through love, either like love of God or love of neighbor, you know? So before I give um, just a final word from the epistle of Barnabas, your thoughts on judgment, Steph, judgment day. Oh gosh. I'm a little nervous about the, the whole prospect of every careless word like you were talking about. <laughs> but, you know, I know that God is a good judge and that, you know, that's going to be for rewards and such. And um, But I'm thankful that I have a Savior who loves me and who is abundant in forgiveness. Yeah, you know, you you just brought to my mind the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah story where Abraham is pleading with God to spare the people of Sodom. And Abraham says to God, in his pleading with God, he says to God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He calls out God mm-hmm. like that. And of course, I mean, it's a rhetorical statement. Of course, the answer is yes. And one of the things that it shows in that statement or in that, in that whole story is that God is very patient, abounding in steadfast love, rich in mercy, rich in mercy, slow to anger, he he was like, what what if there are fifty people? You got it. Well, what if there are forty? Yeah, we'll spare the city. And it just keeps on going. Like God does not want to destroy Sodom. Right. But he is righteous. He will do right. And Jesus describes the the day of the Lord, his coming like what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. He describes it like that. He's going to do right. He's going to repay the evildoer. Now with that, I'll bring in two verses real quick. What is the one thing that triumphs over judgment? Mercy. That's what James says. And where did James get that from? He got that from Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Yeah. So if you are concerned about judgment day, Jude talks about this as well. At the end of his letter, we have to imitate the Lord in being rich in mercy. And I know that is hard to do at times. It's really hard, but that is what the Lord wants. He wants people to experience mercy. Um, I'm going to read this one quote from the epistle of Barnabas. This is in the conclusion 
this is an early document. Uh, the early Christians really liked this. There is debates about whether it should be in the canon of scripture or not. Um, they also debated the authorship. Some said it was Barnabas. It's probably not Barnabas. It's very similar to two documents, one being in the canon and one just outside of the canon. It's very similar to the epistle of Hebrews. Very, very similar to that. It's also very similar to the Didache. So basically if the epistle of Hebrews and the Didache had a baby, it's the epistle of Barnabas. All right. You should read it. It's fantastic. Um, This is in the conclusion. So if you think the world is going to hell right now, like, it, Jesus must be coming uh, soon, you'll, you'll like the epistle of Barnabas, especially the conclusion. The author says, the day is approaching when the world will share the fate of the evil one. The Lord is at hand and his reward is with him. So, May the God and Lord of all the world grant you wisdom, understanding, and knowledge together with true comprehension of his commands and the gift of perseverance. Take God for your teacher and study to learn what the Lord requires of you. Then do it and you will find yourselves accepted at the day of judgment. I kept my head low and I walked that narrow road As mighty men roamed who devoured both house and home But I won't forget that day you made yourself known Said the end has come for men, but hang tight to me with your family. Just reached on And I won't 